Hear the word of the Lord as I read. Now among those who went up to Jerusalem at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven and I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Again, may God help us to understand this, his most precious word. You know, obviously you didn't come here for a Greek mythology or Greek uh, tragedy 101. But if I could tell you a little bit about Greek tragedies, it helps, it helps understand what Jesus is saying here. When Sophocles and playwrights in the ancient Greek world wrote poetry that ended up becoming uh, plays, they wrote them in such a way that the plots became so complicated and so bogged down, and in many ways the characters were hopeless, that at the right moment they literally would lower a character onto the stage who was playing a god, that they even had a... Uh, a term uh, for this. They called it God out of a machine. The idea was that when things get hopeless, and they almost always did in the Greek tragedies, when the plots become so complicated that they can't be resolved by humans, they would enter a God who would resolve everything. Horace hated that. Horace, a a, a Latin uh, playwright, would say, you don't bring a God onto the stage... Unless it is truly hopeless, unless nothing else could be done. 
That whole thought of God out of a machine appears in uh, Euripides. It appears in uh, Shakespeare's writings. It, it even appears in uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And in fact, I think you're seeing it today in the superhero movies. The superheroes of today's movies are the ancient gods of the Greek world. You bring a superhero onto the planet when humans have so messed it up that someone other than a human can resolve it. That shouldn't really surprise you. Somebody love Batman. Paul will write this. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When it really was hopeless. When cynicism really fit. When pessimism was reigning. Enter Christ to resolve the world's problem. This morning, I just want us to think about one question. And think of this question. Why would God save this world? Why would God save the world? For that which God saved the world. We know because the most famous verse, whether you're a Muslim or a Hindu or an atheist or a Christian, knows this verse. May not know where it is in the Bible. Or quite frankly, many of them know what, what it, where it's referenced, but don't know the verse. For God so loved the world. John 3.16. We looked at it a number of weeks ago. For God so loved the world that he gave his own son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And then verse 17 goes on and says, For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. Why did God save the world? Because he loves the world. Because he loves the world. If you had to convict God for loving the world, I'm not sure he would call Christians as his witness. I don't think the world gets the impression that we believe that God loves our world. And therefore, I'm not sure he would put us on the stand to testify. We talk about terms of the world going to hell, the world burning up, the uh, the left behind series that, hey, uh, uh, my seat might be vacant because of a rapture. All of that kind of language gets into our culture and gets the impression that we don't care about the world and that our God doesn't care about the world. And so I think we need to spend a little time asking this question, why did God save the world? And what does it mean that he loves it? I want to tie that to something that Jesus says in this passage about that love. He's been talking about for some time now how much God loves the world, his creation. And and then when Jesus begins to talk about his hour, he says to his father, glorify your name. The problem we struggle with that is we don't tend to think of glory the way that the ancient people thought about glory. And so its meaning, its its depth, its breadth, its beauty is lost on us. 
We tend to think of glory as an action, a heroic action. And there's some application that fits with that. But in the ancient world, glory meant weight. It meant heaviness. It meant importance, significance, that whatever it is, it matters. And so when you begin to think about love in that way, how much does love weigh? What makes a love important, significant, that it matters? And so when you begin to think of it this way, you begin to think of God's love for the world has weight because he sent his son to save it. That is, God saves the world through the death of a son. Why? Because he loves it is the weight of the love of God. That is its heaviness because of the cost. And so first I want to describe to you the plan, then the means, and then last, the glory. Very quickly, this idea that God has always planned to save the world, even before he created it. Now, I know that boggles the mind, that that you could actually have a, a, a thought about saving something you haven't yet created, but we're talking about God here, not humans. Our text starts off with some Greeks. Now, understand what that means. When it says some Greeks... Don't think about people who weren't uh, Jewish religiously. They were. These, these people worshipped Yahweh. They had come to the feast. They had come to worship at the temple. They were faithful believers. Their nationality, though, was not Hebrew. Their nationality was something other than Hebrew. And the way that Hebrews described everybody that wasn't Hebrew is they called them Greeks. Because at one time, the world's language, now obviously that's myopic, it's not talking about every part of the world, but the part of the world that the Hebrews lived in, the language was Greek. And so that's how everybody else, we would say in the United States, when we meet somebody who's not from here, we call them foreigners. We don't necessarily mean pejorative, but sometimes it means that any more than they would have meant all Greeks pejoratively, but often it meant that. And so I think it's important to understand these non-Hebrews have come to, to Philip and said, hey, sir, we want to see Jesus. Why? Because he just raised Lazarus from the dead. Obviously, people are going to want to meet the guy who raised somebody from the dead. It's not something that happens every week. In fact, not one in their lifetime. And so they wanted to meet the Jesus. And so Andrew and Philip, who hear that request, they go to Jesus. And in verse 22, and they tell him about it. And Jesus' response is astounding. If you and I were going to start a ministry and there was a charismatic figure that was attached to that ministry that everybody wanted to be around... What do you want to do? You want to expose him to as many people as possible. Can you imagine this request? Philip and Andrew have come to Jesus and say, Jesus, there's some Greeks who are, who are Jewish who want to come and see you because they've heard about some of the things you've been saying and doing. And, and, and Jesus says nothing about letting them come. He doesn't say one thing about them. 
his response seems a little odd until you go a little deeper and then you find out he's answering their question in a more comprehensive, a more profound way than simply say, yeah, bring them on. Can you imagine Philip and Andrew when they hear him talking about some seeds dying on the earth in response to their request to bring these guys to meet Jesus? Jesus, come on now. We're trying to build a movement here. Why aren't you exposing yourself even more to more people who want to see you? The reason I say it's a more comprehensive and deeper, Jesus says in verse 32, and I think it's the key to the passage, and I, when I am lifted up on the earth, will draw all people to myself. The reason that is important is something that, Jesus, that, that God says to Abram, who becomes Abraham, now becomes fulfilled. That is, when Abram didn't have children, he walked around in his name as father. How, how embarrassing, how, how isolating it must be to have the name father and have no children, or mother and no children. But that's Abram. And then God comes to him in Genesis 15, and you can check it out at another time, and says, I'm going to change your name. You're not only going to be a father, which he had no children, but you're going to be a father. Abraham takes two Hebrew words, Abram, father, and at the end, am, peoples, plural. And so his name becomes father of many peoples, plural, all kinds of people, every kind of people. What I'm trying to say is that we tend to think sometimes that God's plan A was to reach the Jews and through the Jews, the entire world. There's some truth to that. And God does have special love for uh, the Jews because it is from that tribe of human beings comes the Christ. But let's don't miss the fact that way back before there ever was one Jew on the on the planet, God said, I'm going to bless all peoples. That the promise that was given to the Jews before there were Jews was given to all peoples. That we all share this father, Abraham, who are in Christ. And it shows up here in fulfillment when Jesus says, I must be lifted up. And it will draw all people to myself. That word people there literally means all kinds or every kind of people. He's answering their question. They want to come see Jesus. And Jesus is saying, not only will you see me when I am lifted up, but I will save you when I am lifted up. You see, he answers their question in a more profound, comprehensive way than they asked. They just wanted to see Jesus. And he's saying, seeing me is not the key. Saving you is the key. They won't merely see him. He has a plan to save the world. He begins to talk about in verse 23, there's a, there's a moment, an hour And it has finally arrived. Everything in the Gospel of John has been running to this moment, this hour of his. The fact that Greeks have come to him is evidence that the hour has come for him to die. Kind of like the first leaf of spring. That there's been a plan from the beginning to save the world. Because the world has gotten to a point 
where the plot is so complicated, it is so broken down, it is so beyond hope, we've become cynical and pessimistic. And at the right time, Christ has come to die for the world. Which brings us to the means how he saved the world. Jesus says in verse 27, my soul is troubled. That's not the first time he said that, right? Remember Lazarus' tomb? He said the same thing. He said it twice. And I told you then that it doesn't mean that simply there's this inner turmoil. The word literally means to groan audibly. People could hear Jesus groan. He groaned at death, the fact that death had taken his friend and that death was part of the of the human condition and death is part of this world. And he's come to defeat death. Here he is saying, my soul is troubled. That is, I'm groaning over something. What's he groaning over now? Please don't read he's groaning over the plan. That was done before there was an earth. Before there was one human being. He's not groaning at God's plan to save the world. He's groaning at the personal cost it will take to save the world. The weight of saving the world is what he's groaning about. And that's why he says in 27, Father, save me from this hour. There's a question mark in my scripture But in the original language, there's no question marks because there are no punctuation. We've heard this or we will hear this again in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, Lord, take this cup from me. Not my will, but thy will be done. For this purpose, I have come. You see, he's letting his the objective truth. Bring into line his subjective feeling. He's not allowing his subjective feeling to determine the outcome of the plan. The objective truth is ruling and reigning here. So what's that plan? What's the purpose for which Jesus has come? He says in verse 32, when I am lifting up from the earth, he's talking about the cross. How do we know that? Verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Here's where I think we struggle. What is the gospel? The gospel isn't that Jesus died on a cross. Historians don't debate that. Theologians are the only ones that want to retro uh, evaluate whether Jesus was a real human being or a representation of an idea. Historians don't debate that there was a Jesus and that the Romans crucified him. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, why did Jesus die on the cross? No one debates that he lived and died. At least no one that has objective truth. But we are debating for whom he died and for what he died for. Why did Jesus die? And I think that's important for us to understand because that's the essence of the gospel. Why did Jesus die? Our text has been telling us, when I say our text, the whole gospel of John has been pointing to this. Jesus has come into the world to save the world. To save it from what? Do you see it in verse 31? This is where we start to squirm. Now is the judgment of this world. 
the time has come to judge the world. When? 2,000 years ago was the time to judge this world. The plot had gotten so complicated, so hopeless, so, so, so broken that only a God could be lowered from the machine into the world to resolve the conflict. Jesus Christ came into the world to solve our problem. What's our problem? We've offended the God who created us. And He cursed this world for it. Everyone in it and the world itself. And as a result, what happened 2,000 years ago is that God judged the world. At least he judged a representative of it. He took his only begotten son. He took his only son. And he allowed human beings to nail him to a cross and die. But what gave that death weight was that the wrath of God that was due us was emptied on him. It passed over us and fell on him. The entire world's sins were emptied and judgment came. Feel the weight that God looked at the world and said the only way to fix this is to take an infinite God and incarnate him as a human so that we could kill him on a tree. And that God could take that moment of his death and empty on him everything that was due our sin. And that be satisfaction. How do we know that? How do we know that it did that? Well, first of all, he rose from the dead. But also we know this. Paul will say, in Romans 5. But God showed his love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by blood, by his death, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's the weight of his love. Just to tell somebody you love them carries no weight unless it is occupied by something that cost you, by a commitment for the well-being of the one and for whom you love, willing to do whatever it takes for their flourishing, for their well-being, for their salvation. That's the weight of that love. And then he says, listen, in verse 32, once I'm lifted up, once this is accomplished, it will draw every kind of person in the world. How do we know that? When John looks in the new heavens and the new earth, what does he see? People from every tribe, people, and tongue, which is another way of saying of every kind of person. He didn't say everyone would be saved, but there will be people of every tribe, people, every kind of people. That's the weight of God's love to save the world, which brings this last thought. There's glory in this. There's weight in saving the world. There's importance. There, it matters to save the world. Why? Look what Jesus says. This is Jesus' request of the Father in heaven. He knows he's going to the cross. His hour has come. His moment has arrived. 
And the way he knew his moment arrived, a bunch of Greeks came and said, can we see Jesus? He says, Father, glorify your name. You see it in verse 28. Jesus is saying, I want my death to matter. I want, I want it to be significant. I want it to be important. I want it to define human history. I want it to define the cosmos. My purpose to save the world. And the Father answers him and says, a voice from heaven. That's God, the Father in heaven. I have glorified it. When did God glorify his name? It means at least at creation. This is our Father's world. It means that he looks at this world and he says it is good. In fact, just so you don't get it wrong, he says it seven times. It is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it's good, it's good. And then the seventh time, just so you don't miss it, it's very good. Check it out, Genesis 1, and it ends at the very beginning of chapter 2. If God wanted a testimony that he loved this world, all he would have to put is Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in front of someone. I created it. I love this world. I had so much love for my son and the Holy Spirit that it spilt over, and that's what creation became. The outflow of that amazing love. But then Paul gets on that and he says this in Romans 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. If we stopped right there, we'd say, yes, we agree. He's, they're waiting for us to be saved. But it doesn't just stop there. It goes, for the creation was subjected to futility. That is, because of human sin, the world carries the curse. Not willingly... But because of the him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you hear what he's saying? I glorified it in creation. Then he says, I will glorify it again. You see it in that phrase? Because he's going to redeem it. Not just us, but obviously human beings but also the very world that he created. He loves this world. He's coming back to make all things new. Obviously, the weight of his love is shown in his creation. The weight of his love is shown in his redemption. And the weight of his love is shown in his consummation when he makes all things new. What does that mean? means that God loves you. I, I don't mean that in the way that sometimes we end a phone call, love you. It, it, it seems so trivial, so light. Or, or maybe uh, you've been dating somebody for a little while and you use those three magical words, I love you. That's not how it's being used here. God loves you and that's why you exist. And he showed you the weight of that love because he didn't leave you as you exist. He came and sent his son to die for you. That the wrath of God, the judgment of God would pass over you onto him. And one more thing. He doesn't just love you. And there's a weight to that. He loves the whole world which allows us to enter this world and begin to work toward that end of making all things new. You and I, we, 
we read the newspapers or we watch uh, 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 the news or, or maybe you, you get it on your tablet. And that's going to do one or two things to you. That is going to render you pessimistic and hopeless. Or you're going to recognize this is what Christ came to do. He's come to redeem it all the brokenness of this world. All the things, whether you're talking about the North Korean uh, president, you're talking about the number of, do you realize that this year 30,000 people will commit suicide? 30,000. We've made a way too much, in my opinion, of 13 reasons why. It's a terrible provocative, uh, uh, a Netflix uh, 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 show, but we missed the point. 30,000 people are checking out of this world, not because suicide is, is glorious, but because their lives are hopeless. Do you feel the weight of that? 30,000 people have decided that it is better to die than to live. And you sit as sons and daughters of light that give hope. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. The people's hearts are breaking because of the hopelessness they feel. And you have the hope of this world. The very weight of the love of God for them. You have the plan to tell them, yes, this world is broken and from human perspective, it is beyond fixing. Enter a God lowered from a machine to come and tell the world, I have come to save you because I love you and I won't leave you like this. I will make you new. That's the hope of the world that we carry. And we shouldn't be just telling each other. We have to tell the world. Because the world has decided in many cases that it's easier to die than live with the brokenness of their lives. Don't miss that. Do you realize that's the second leading cause of death for people between the age of 12 and 18? It's more than drugs. Hopelessness. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have looked into a hopeless situation of our world and sent your son. And because he loved us, because you have loved us, he has saved us. By his own death, he paid the penalty. He he allowed your wrath to be emptied upon him in our place. And it's the beginning of a promise of making all things new that was evidenced in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, I pray, Father, that there's some girl or some boy in this room who's been thinking for some time now that the only way to get out of their brokenness, to get out of their situation, is to check out of this world. 
And I pray that they hear for the very first time that you're going to make everything new. That you have already sent your son to show them how much you love them. I pray for the person who is incredibly underemployed and doesn't have enough money at the end of the of the month to pay all his bills. And it's beginning to look like that the only way out of the situation is to cash in. I pray, Heavenly Father, for the people in this room, which is all of us who don't know how much you love us. Would you use the Spirit today to impress upon our hearts just to the depth and breadth and height of that love? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And I pray, Father, that we take that message into the lives of the people in which we have relationships, that that we might give the hope of this world as sons of the light. Because we walk in light, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.